First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Mark Twain once wrote, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. From the very first sin, we are inclined to want to make our own rules rather than submit to God and to His Word. And even though we are redeemed by Christ, the effects of this sin are not immediately and totally removed when we repent and believe. And so we should expect, first, that there will be things in God's Word that will bother us and that we disagree with, at least initially, because our heart is still corrupt by sin and in need of transforming. If everything you read in the Bible you agreed with immediately, then I have to ask the question, who is God then? Is it Him with His Word, or is it you with your Word? Second, our minds will work really hard to justify what our hearts desire. Our minds will work really hard to come up with ways to justify what our sinful hearts desire. So we need to be aware of that as we come to God's Word, and we need to be aware of that particularly today, as we have a passage that many in today's Christian world would say is tricky and quite unclear, but I actually don't think it's much trickier in the words of the passage than really any other passage is. However, it is trickier in the world that we live. Nevertheless, it's one of the most heated passages in all of 1 Timothy, and frankly, in much of the New Testament today. It's not even 10 years ago that I would have struggled reading this passage, and I would have taken issue with the sermon that I'm about to preach. I would have, uh, uh, if 10 years ago me were here, I would have probably had a, tried to have a healthy debate with me after service. And by healthy, I mean probably not so healthy. It wasn't until someone clearly and patiently pointed out Paul's words here in this passage and the reasoning with which Paul uses that I began to have to really wrestle with the text. You know, it's one thing to hold and to say that God's Word is an authority over our life. It's another thing when we actually have to submit to it. 
truth, my mind came first. It was a point in which I couldn't deny what the text actually said. And my heart wrestled for a long time. It, was, it slowly came along. And so, as I preach this sermon, I, I'm going to try to patiently and clearly teach, as well as I know how, what it says. And I'm asking from you that you would be willing to listen, that you would consider what I'm going to say, and that you would go to the Word and really look at it for yourself, seeking to submit yourself to God and to His Word. And so why, why is this such a heated issue? Paul is going to make applications specific to Christian men and Christian women which confront particular sinful tendencies that are wired in us from the fall. And so these, these are actual sinful tendencies that we know from Scripture are perennial tendencies that we have as men and women particularly. And so, of course, they're going to be some of the most difficult places for us. They're going to touch, they're more likely to touch a sinful nerve in our person, right? But this is even more inflamed today because we live in a culture where it is not merely that men and women are falling into these sinful traps as they have in every year since Adam and Eve fell. It's not even that people want to call what Scripture says is good, bad, or evil. But in our day, it seems the only true offense is distinguishing between men and women at all, between male and female at all. And that makes it even more difficult. It's harder to say, it's hard enough to say, hey, here men is a particular sinful tendency that you're going to have, or here women is a particular sinful tendency you can have. That's hard enough in and of itself, but when everything around us in the world says, wait, 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 you, you can't say that something is particular to men or something is particular to women. That is wrong. It makes this entire conversation more difficult, and I think that is part of the scheme of the devil. And so one of Paul's pillars for a strong church that upholds and protects the gospel is a community in which men act like true men and women act like true women. But how can this happen? Well, the bottom line for us this morning is this. We can avoid common sins by embracing God's design for men and women through faith in Christ. We can avoid common sins by embracing God's design for men and women, but we must do that. In order to really truly do that, we must do that through faith in Christ. It's only through Christ that we can accurately see it. It's only through Christ and faith in Him that we can even do it. And Paul gives direct instructions in our passage, first to men in verse 8, and then to women in verses 9 through 13. And we're going to ask two questions. We're going to ask the question, men, how are you leading others? Men, how are you leading others? We're going to ask the question, women, how are you adorning yourselves? All right, men, how are you leading others? Verse 8, 
as we look at at verse 8, we need to first observe that there's a transition here. This trans, we, need to, we need to understand what this transition is in order to understand how uh, this single a powerful verse, the, the weight that it has, the weight that it comes with. And so the passage starts, I desire then, but it could just as well be translated as the a New American Standard Bible translates it, therefore, I want. Paul is saying, therefore, because of what came before, here is what I want from you men particularly. And what came before? What were the arguments that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 7? Well, Paul has just commanded prayer in order that the church might live godly and peaceful lives, right? That would promote the gospel and promote gospel fruit amongst the nations, and that was the first application, right? All the way back in chapter, at the end of chapter 1, we saw that Timothy was to fight the good fight against what was unsound in the church. And so we could ask this question, men, how are you fighting? But since that fight is an aspect of Timothy's leadership, and in view of what Paul is about to say in verse, uh, later in verse... Um, 12 in regard to men leading, and what he's about to say uh, in the next chapter in terms of the offices of leadership within the church, I think it's appropriate to phrase the question, how are you leading, or perhaps how are you, fi- how are you leading this good fight that we have before us? And so the question, how are you leading others? How are men to lead this good fight? Well, he gives us two ways, public prayer and holiness. He says in every place that men should pray. Now, this is not, he's not saying like, you know, you know map out the city and make sure at every single address you've got a man there and he's prayed there. You know, that's not what he means. What he means to say is this is a universal rule for wherever the Christian community is gathering together, men should pray. Therefore, we are specifically talking here about public prayer. And then also in holiness, he says that men should Pray lifting holy hands. Now, if you want, when you pray, men, to lift holy hands, to actually lift your hands up, I think that's a worthy and good application of this text, but I think there's a heart underneath of it, and what we're going to find out in this passage is there's a lot of external things that are true that we ought to do, but those external things also point to internal realities that we need to be aware of, that that are really at the core of what Paul is trying to encourage us towards. And so lifting holy hands often signifies the commitment of one's conduct to being holy. Take, for example, Psalm 119.48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Uh, You can think of it in this way. Literally, rather than lifting up your hands to punch someone, you're lifting up your holy hands in prayer. And so what then is the common sin for men that Paul is addressing here? Well, it's anger and quarreling. He says that. He says that right there in verse 8. Without anger or quarreling, this prayer and holy conduct is contrasted to the other ways in which we could fight. Listen, it's not a question of whether men will fight. 
Men will fight. I remember I was at the, uh, a game one time, and there was a couple of boys, you know, like 10 years old, 19 years old, and they were, you know, it was their sister's softball game, and I don't know, like, no offense, but like, softball's not like the most entertaining thing. And so they were over there playing, you know, around, no, if you're a softball player, I'm sorry, I just offended you unnecessarily. Um, but they were over there playing uh, in the grass, and they were wrestling, and they were laughing, and they were, you know, kind of beating each other up a little bit. And I remember standing there, and, and I was observing this, and there's some moms there, and their moms started complaining, like, stop it, cut it out, quit doing that. They didn't like that their, their nine and 10-year-old sons were wrestling over. Now, now mind you, they weren't, they weren't mad at each other. They weren't like actually hurting each other. They just didn't like that they were fighting, play fighting. And I wanted to say, Mom, don't do that. That's a nine and a 10-year-old boy. They're doing exactly what God designed them to do. That is, there's nothing sinful that's happening right now. This is good and God-honoring. So moms, for what that's worth. It's in the nature of men to use our strength for good fights, even all the way back in the garden. The command of God to Adam, part of his command was to keep the garden, it says. And the meaning of that word is to watch over or to guard, to fight for it, to protect it. This is why the primary task, it's a primary task of men in the church and fathers in their families to do that. But that strength can also be twisted for bad fights or it can be twisted to fight a good fight in a bad way. And Paul wants to make sure that that's not what happens. Rather than watching over and fighting for the benefit of our wives or of, of our church or for our kids, we can fight against them for our own benefit or even fight to get away from them. And that's what men ought not to do. Christian men can often be angered about the deceptions in the world or and even in the church, about Christians who live lawlessly, unrighteously, and encourage others to do the same. And, and good, you should be upset about that. The design is to keep. That design to keep, to guard, is being drawn out of you when you see those things. No, I want to keep my family from that unrighteousness. No, I want to keep my church from that unsound teaching. That is a good impulse. However, if you are prepared to strong arm your wife, and if you are ready to and willing to go toe to toe with a person, even whether they're in, per, in person or in social media, consider are you quicker to lift your voice in anger or lift your hands in prayer? Are you first to pray or are you first to post? Are you more concerned about them knowing you're right or about being right and holy before? God. Prayer is our first weapon. It's a weapon against the true enemy, even as we are tools in the hands of God against those whom Satan is using as tools for his own ends. But prayer is also a tool on us. It's a tool that guides us to the good fights and away from the bad fights. It's a tool that, that shapes us to fight in the good and the right ways that we ought to be fighting. And so, men, we must go to God in prayer. That is our first weapon in this fight. 
What does that mean? What does this mean then for Christian men today? Foremost, I want to say that it is a sad thing how few professing Christian men will pray in front of their small group or a Christian brother or even their own family. I just want to take a minute to lament that fact. Boys grow up never or rarely hearing their fathers pray, and they begin to think that it is a thing unbecoming of a man. When in fact, Paul says, no, it is the foremost thing becoming of a man. Name me even a single godly man in the Bible that is not known to be a man of prayer. You say, oh, Cody, but I was one of those boys. I had no example, no model, no one taught me. I'd mess it up. I can't do this. Listen, an example is a blessing, true, but the command is no less in force for you, men. Why are you embarrassed to learn a thing so important that the Bible says is so important, so vital to the Christian life, so vital to the health of your church and your family, so vital to who you are in Christ as a man? Why are you embarrassed to learn it? You're not embarrassed when you need to learn how to fix something new on your car. You weren't embarrassed when you had to learn a sport for the first time. You weren't embarrassed when you needed to learn something at work. No, rather, you did the work, you learned it, and then you puffed up your chest and you said, I I figured it out. I made mistakes, yes, but I figured it out. I'm a man. But you refuse to learn to do what God calls men to do. You refuse to pray in public. So then what keeps you from praying in public? Either you disagree with your creator that it is an eminently manly task, or you are too scared. You're too afraid. You're afraid of the opinions of others more than you're, well, more than you're afraid of the opinion of God. And to you, in the words of, well, in the words of God, I'd say, act like a man and be courageous. Because the cowardly have no inheritance in Christ. All right, men, how are you leading others? Well, women, how are you adorning yourselves? Paul now addresses women in how they adorn themselves, and and he gives a positive, and then a negative, and then a positive command. How are women to adorn themselves? Well, first, they're to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. That is to say, what's honorable. And they're to do so with modesty and self-control itself. Now, this is not defining, this phrase with modesty and self-control is not defining the apparel so much as it is meant to point to the mindset or the attitude needed for this kind of respectable outward adorning. Uh, First, what the ESV translates modesty here refers to having a right sense of honor and shame. The word there uh, has this, this idea of having a right sense of honor and shame. To dress respectfully, a woman then needs first to understand that there is a difference between what's shameful and honorable to wear and what's un, that, what, what is not shameful, right? They need to understand that there's a difference between a shameful way to dress and an honorable way to dress. Second, they need to know the difference. 
And third, they need to care that they don't go outside of what God would say is honorable, that what God would, would say is, and into what God would say is shameful. Second, we have this word self-control. Self-control has to do with a, a inner self-government that would hinder the temptation to dress in a disrespectful or dishonorable way, that, that attitude or that mindset inside of us that would say, okay, I've got this, perhaps a desire to do this thing, but I'm not going to because I know I ought not to. It's self-control. To be very clear, Paul is saying modesty is a thing. And I think even within the Christian world, I've seen that there's a lot of people that want dis- to dis- disregard that modesty is a thing. Modesty is a thing in Scripture. It matters. It matters that Christian women dress modestly. Paul makes that clear. Paul makes it clear that not dressing modestly is and ought to be shameful. It dishonors the woman and it dishonors God's design for her, and it manifests an immodest heart and a distorted view of oneself and one's appearance. Paul wants women to be dignified, not denigrated. Women, don't denigrate yourselves. What is the common sin then for women? Well, the common sin that we see here is using their beauty for sinful ends. And this we see in the, the negative part of the command And I think it's using their beauty for sinful ends, both in showy ways, but also in provocative ways. It says, quote, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, before anyone who has their hair braided starts to unbraid it or, you know, like takes their gold off, let's hold on a second. Let me finish. These things Paul brings up would not only have taken an inordinate amount of time and energy and money to do in that context, but it would have been only for the purpose of bringing attention to oneself and trying to one-up the other women in the body of Christ. In addition to that, it would have been a way of presenting oneself that would have been associated with the habit and dress of prostitutes in that time and place. So it's not the things themselves, gold, pearls, etc., that are the problem. In other places in Scripture, gold and pearls and even brides being adorned beautifully are all fine and fitting so long as it's done in the right way and in the right time and place. Nor is it saying that women should, you know, come to church or wherever or, or just generally be wherever, you know, unkept. You know, hey, the secret is just be unkept. Dress, you know, slovenly and then you'll be fine, right? No, that's not what Paul is saying here. He says to be, you know, there's, there's a way in which to push that the other way, and you're, you're not respectable on that side, right? You know, there's a time for sweatpants, but not every time is a time for sweatpants, you know what I mean? Like, as much as we want it to be. So, one scholar says it this way. He, he notes, it's the excess and the sensuality that these items connote that Paul forbids, not braids, gold, pearls, or even costly garments in and of themselves. It's the excess. Look at me. Look what I can do. Look what I have the time and the money for. I'm so much better than you. It's the 
provocativeness. Look at me. Putting their, their beauty, uh, twisting it for these sensual, provocative purposes. And so we have a final positive command. How are women to adorn themselves then? Well, they're to adorn themselves with good works. And this really gets to the heart of the matter, right? What's proper for people to see when they look at a woman who professes godliness? When, when someone, if you want to, if you profess godliness, what ought someone see when they look at you, women? They ought to see good works, it says. And this is that age-old truth that we saw in Proverbs 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So what are these good works that are particular to women? Well, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, it gives us some examples. Although it's not an exhaustive list, it says there, having a good reputation, having a, repu- a reputation of, for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So right there, Paul is giving us a, a sort of a, quick list of, of things, you know, he brackets it with good works at the front, good works at the end, and then here's the things that he says off the top of his head, right? These are the specific things he wants to impress on them, examples of what good works are, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted. And then when Paul, in just a few verses, um, well, I should say, when Paul instructs Titus, so if we turn to, to the book of Titus, and he says, hey, older women train younger women, And then he tells them what to train them in. Here are the things that are really important, older women, for you to train younger women in. In Starting in verse 3 of, of, uh, I believe this is Titus 3. I didn't write that down. I'm sorry. Titus isn't a long book, so you can find it if you want to. It says, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. But oftentimes we skim over these things as if they're options for women. As if it's sort of like, hey, if you want to, if you, if you kind of like this kind of thing, then it be, you know, it's good, but if you don't, then you know, it's not such a big deal. But it is not an option. Paul is directing the hearts of the women of the church towards very specific things, saying this is God's design, this is good in Christ. Well, consider again Peter's words in 1 Peter 3 through 6. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear. This, sound, this starts to sound real similar to Paul's words, isn't it? It's almost like this is just what it was in the church. No one, unquestionable, universal. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is in, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Paul says, or Peter says, you want a model? You want a model for how you should live, women? Look at Sarah. Look at Sarah. You would do good to follow her example. Your women say, you know, we, we kind of, we, we say like, oh, you know, uh, uh, beauty. Women are designed to exhibit beauty, but then women say, oh, well, I'm, I'm older, I'm this, I'm this, I'm, you know, my beauty is faded, right? Paul says, no, not the imperishable beauty. It doesn't have to fade. There's a beauty that never fades. There's an imperishable beauty that you, as a woman, are to strive for, that any woman, no matter how God has designed them, no matter how they are externally, any woman in Christ can obtain, and it is the greatest kind of beauty. What is it? It's a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what's precious in God's sight. That's how the holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves. And it's interesting Peter gives as a particular, a particular example here that scene, I don't know if you remember, that scene in Genesis 18 where the angels come to Abraham and Abraham is hosting them and Sarah is in her tent and she's not visibly there, but she can hear from her, her tent and, and the angel of the Lord says, hey, Sarah is going to have a child in a year. And what does Sarah do? She laughs to herself, right? Because what? She's really old. Like she's really old, Right? And she's like, how am I going to have a kid? How's Abraham going to have a kid? He's really old. Ah, but her beauty wasn't gone, was it? But she laughs to herself. And what does she do? To herself, she says, how, how could I, how could my, uh, how can I have a child when my Lord is old? Even in her quiet self-reflection, in her own heart, when no one hears, she is submissive to her husband. And Peter says, there's an example of a quiet and gentle spirit that every Christian woman should look to. And maybe you're afraid the ship has sailed on all of that, or that people will think, something bad about you, if you make that to be the model for your womanhood, uh, who you are as a woman in Christ, or what will happen if you trust God and you begin to do that sort of thing. But I ask you, look again to Sarah, who when she laughed was confronted, was she not, with the angel of the Lord? And how did she respond? She was afraid. I didn't laugh. She denied it because she was afraid of the confrontation. But then what happened? How did the story end? She has Isaac, and what does she do? She names Isaac, Isaac, which means he laughs. And what does she say at that point? She says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's no longer afraid. In faith, she trusts God in his promises. How did she do that? Because when she was laughing a year before, Abraham was not. She trusted her husband, and God provided. There's plenty of talk about brave women, and I'm all for it, so long as the bravery we're talking about is the bravery we see in Scripture. The 
bravery that trusts God and obeys Him and embraces His design. So how, how, what can help us to avoid these common sins? What can help women to avoid these common sins? Well, we get some explicit commands about the character of, of, of how men ought to be uh, in chapter 3, but first we have some explicit commands for Christian women here. And so what will help women avoid this sin and grow in the knowledge uh, of godliness and grow in actions that are godly and good works, well, we see in verse 11 this. It says that women ought to learn quietly and submissively. Learning matters. Our knowledge of God translates into worship of God. How can you love what you don't know? How can you praise God when you don't know how praiseworthy He is? How can you obey God when you've not learned what you ought to obey? See, some Jewish traditions restricted women from learning the Torah, but Jesus was intentional about teaching women, and he and we ought to do likewise in the church. Every woman in Christian community should be expected to grow in what they know about God and know how to apply it to their lives. Just as Christ is sanctifying us, men, husbands, I'll speak to you particularly, you should be concerned about how you are helping to sanctify your wives. They have to be growing in the knowledge of God. But how they learn matters as well. See, first, it should be quietly. The word here doesn't mean total silence. It doesn't mean women can't speak at all. That's not what's meant here. Rather, both inwardly in their heart and externally with their mouths, they ought to have a position of opening their ears to learn instead. The external action of quietness matters, but we're not merely talking about quietness because certainly you could walk around and not say a single word, but in your heart, it's a totally different picture. And Paul's not satisfied with that. He wants our hearts to be transformed as well. He wants these women to have that quiet and gentle, what? Not just action, spirit. should also be with submissiveness. Everywhere, listen, everywhere in our culture, submission is seen as fundamentally a negative thing. No matter where you turn, if you, t- if you use the word submission, I tried this one time, it's been a number of years ago on social media, I just said, hey, submission, you know, what do you think? And I'm telling you, I've never had so many responses from non-Christians, uh, well, Christians too, but especially non-Christians, and every single person assumed that whoever is submitting is necessarily put in a negative position. Like that submission in any form is bad. It is evil. And that's a problem. Because Scripture has an utterly different view of submission. And we have to work hard to conform our mind and transform our heart to God's Word. Frankly, submission is fundamental to the Christian faith. And so wouldn't it make sense that what the thing that Satan wants to make necessarily an evil would be a thing that is fundamental to the Christian faith? Oftentimes what we think is, well, if someone is submitting to someone else, then therefore they must have less value than that person. But that is not what Scripture says. Paul is concerned 
that this good learning not produce a bad overreaction of insubordination amongst women in the church. Thus, in verse 12, he makes it really clear, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, certainly, certainly, listen, I have, I have and will continue to learn things from women, not the least of which is my wife, right? It's like every day I learn something from her. But in terms of this official authority or teaching role, and in regard to official positions of authority and teaching in the church, Paul says, I do not permit women to, to do that. Not just be in that position, but to fill that role, to do that task. Now, we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks. They're not for just any man either. And we'll look at that. But for our purposes today, I want to make that point clear. Now, you might ask, really? How do we know that that's a thing? How do we know that that's not just for like a particular church, not just for this particular church or for particularly Timothy? How do we know that? Uh, I mean, you know, we're, it's 2,000 years later. Aren't we past that? Haven't we kind of like grown past that in some way? We've kind of matured beyond that. How do we know that this applies to all churches in all times? Well, the, the reason we know this is a universal command is because Paul gives universal reasons. There's two reasons he gives. Reason one, the order of creation. Look there, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul finds in the order of creation also an order of authority. Listen, not an order of value, but yes, an order of authority, an order, a hierarchy. This authority structure is is not a product of the fall. It's not a product of sin. It's not a mistake or something that needs to be corrected. It existed prior to sin entering the world. It was part of the design of which God said, and this is good. But our sin does distort it, and it does tempt women to defy it, and it does tempt men to defy it by not taking up the position that God has given them. And as Paul has already told this same church in Ephesians chapter 5, what Christ has done in the gospel and the submission that we have under him ought to bring about a restoration of this order in the right ways in the church. We ought to be able to look at Christ and what he's done for us and say, ah, and so shall we do. The second reason is found in the nature of the fall. We see this in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became transgressor. Paul points to the reality that Adam was not deceived, but it was women. Now, lest you think Adam gets a free pass, Elsewhere, Paul places the weight of every person being born in sin on Adam's shoulders. So he doesn't get a free pass. That's pretty, you know, that's a pretty heavy thing, right? But consider the account of Genesis 2 and 3. Adam, before woman was even created, was given the positive command to take communion, to work and keep, as we said earlier, the garden, as well as a negative command to not eat the fruit of the church, uh, uh, the fruit of the tree. 
the woman was necessary for Adam to fulfill that purpose. He needed her. She was to help him in the purpose that God gave him, and he was to lead her in that. But the serpent came in. And Adam didn't keep the garden, did he? The woman was deceived by the serpent and then gave the fruit to Adam. The flow of authority and teaching flipped from God to Adam to the woman and became Satan to the woman to Adam. And Paul is saying, in Christ, we have got to correct that. Paul's reasoning for the order between Christian men and women is to restore God's original design as well as guard against the same mistakes happening again in the church. Satan only has a few tricks. He's just incredibly good at pulling them off. He's got a lot of years of training. And he keeps going back to that same old bag over and over again. And Paul's saying, no, we've got a way to guard against this. All right, but women, they're given a bonus. A bonus help in avoiding these common sins. Common sins. And that's motherhood. In verse 5, or verse 15 rather, it can be a little bit confusing to read at first. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And many believe this is a reference to Jesus being born of a woman. And, and that interpretation, I think, frankly, has some merit to it. I wouldn't quibble too much with anyone who holds that view, and it aligns with the rest of Scripture, certainly. It connects Eve, the she of verse 15, to the promise in Genesis 3. Eve transgressed, verse 14, but still God gives a gracious promise to her. However, Paul transitions in verse 15 from she at the beginning to they for the saving effect, at least if they continue in faith. And so I think there's actually a better understanding that gives particular weight uh, to the immediate context. And so let me try to explain this to you. It starts with, yet she will be saved. And it's important to note, it's important to understand that the word saved does not necessarily always mean initial salvation. Oftentimes when we hear, oh, they were saved, what we think is they were, uh, there's a point of initial salvation. They, they came to Christ, we would say. You know, they, they, now they have, had, they have faith and they've repented of their sins and they believe and that's oftentimes the way we use the word save, but salvation in Scripture is everything from, you know, election all the way through to glorification, to the end, the very end. All of that is God's saving work. And here I believe what is being meant is the sense of being kept, being saved as being kept or preserved, sanctified even instead of shipwrecked, which is right here in the context of 1 Timothy already. His concern is that there's false teaching, there's unsound teaching, and people, certain persons are going and devoting themselves to that, and eventually they're going to be shipwrecked. They're going to shipwreck their faith, and he wants to preserve it instead. He wants to keep them instead. In fact, we see the same word used just a couple of paragraphs later in chapter 4, verse 16, and here's what it says there. It says, uh, Paul's command to Timothy is, keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, 
For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, Paul doesn't believe Timothy needs to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching so that he can experience initial salvation. He knows, uh, and we see clearly in other places, that he knows that, that Timothy has sincere faith. He states that very clearly. And so we're not talking about initial salvation here. Rather, his concern is that they are brought safely to the destination of their salvation rather than shipwrecking their faith. Okay, so what does childbearing have to do with all that? Well, Paul is using a figure of speech here where a part of something represents the whole of the thing. In other words, childbearing represents all that goes along with motherhood. By emphasizing that which is most obviously the woman's privilege and only the woman's privilege in what God is doing and in the way that He's ordered creation, He intends to encourage women to fill their role rather than stepping out of that position just as Eve had done when Satan tempted her, when the serpent tempted her in the garden. And he's saying basically motherhood actually is... It works against that temptation that is common to women. And this fits the overall context really well. Later, when giving qualifications for enrolling widows in 1 Timothy 5, it it, it is raising children. It is fulfilling motherly care to God's household that sets certain widows as being of high conduct and of good works. And then in verses 11 through 14, he gives warnings to younger widows in 1 Timothy 5 against certain sins, right? Certain pitfalls that they'll face. And then in verse 14 and 15, he says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. And so right there we see some have already strayed, and what is he telling them to do in order to keep them from that straying? He's saying, take up these motherly duties. Bear children. Manage your household. Commit your energy and your focus to those things, and it will save you from your energy and focus being turned to things that are sinful, to these sinful temptations. But wait, you say. Isn't childbearing part of the curse? Wasn't that part of the curse? Well, no. Childbearing was part of God's good design. The curse was that childbearing would be made more difficult. Childbearing existed before the fall. The curse was that it'd be made more difficult. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain. Multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. He did not say, Oh, now because you messed up, now you have to have kids. Tough luck with that. Now, having the, the ability to have children has always, from the very beginning, been a good blessing to women and thus to the world. It's a unique way in which women get to bless all of humanity and bring glory to God. Now, curse does create some complications. And recently, 
Recently, I did see an article that claimed that more women than ever today are afraid of childbearing, despite all the medical advancements that we've made. And then, you know, even ungodly women who reject Christ recognize the pain and risk of childbearing and the difficulty of motherhood that is a product of the curse, even if they deny that sin and the fall is even a thing, right? And so, yeah, there is risk there. And you might say, well, if it's so bad, then, then why not just avoid it? If, if childbearing was just to get the seed, Jesus, well, that's happened. If childbearing was just so that we could get to the seed, Jesus, that's happened. So, so if it's part of the curse, you know, if curse makes it worse, then let's, maybe we should just avoid it. Maybe we should do away with it. Why take the risk? But Christ did not come to dismantle God's original design, but rather to reaffirm the mandate that was from the beginning. It is good for women to bear children, even with the risks that come with the curse. And although childbearing carries those effects, God calls the fruit of it good, and He calls it a blessing, not just to others, not just to to whoever, but it carries with it a promise for all those who continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. When it is done through faith in Christ, as a Christian. It's a means through which God preserves women from many sinful pitfalls that are common to them. Women, it is a blessing to you. If you desire to be preserved from sin, embrace it. If you desire to be sanctified into the likeness of Christ, embrace it. Commit yourself to it. Don't, don't just go, how much do I have to do, but dr- drive into it. Would you not do that with anything else that God says this will be a blessing for you? Would you not do that with anything else that God says this will keep you from temptation? Would you not do that, that with anything else that God says this will sanctify you in the best ways uniquely for you? Would you not do that? So why don't we? I think the question really comes down to this. Will we trust God or won't we? Will we trust Him? Will we trust Him with the risks of childbearing? Will we trust Him with the difficulties that come with motherhood? Will we trust Him when other people mock us or think we're silly for caring so much about that? Will we trust Him when we see other people celebrating women for other things, but we celebrate them for the things that God honors? Will we trust Him that that actually is better? Some may object still. Well, what about women who can't have kids for one reason or the other? Listen, do we deny that parents are beneficial because there are orphans in the world? No. The exception proves the rule. Praise God that Christ is sufficient and provides more than one manner to keep us from our sinful temptations, right? He has more than one way to sanctify us. And so for single women or women who are not yet married or women who sadly cannot have kids, and that happens, I want you to know Christ is sufficient and He can do these things even still. But why would we willingly choose to give that up? 
that, that which God has given us, this good gift. Listen, it's not a sin if a woman doesn't have any kids. It's not necessarily a sin, but it is a sin if, our heart, if in our hearts we consider God's good gift to be bad and refuse it. That is a sin. And it's no benefit to us, despite what the world thinks. So what women do we celebrate as role models? For what are they honored? Either in the world or even in the church. Young girls who are here, what makes your hearts swell when you think about doing, achieving, being? What makes you go, oh, yeah, that would be great. Moms, what is it when you think of of what you would be proud of for your daughters? What comes to your mind? When, you're, when your daughter says, I would aspire to this, what is it that would make you proud of your daughter? Is it for what is very precious in God's sight? A gentle and quiet spirit, a respectable and pure conduct, submissiveness? Or is it for independence? A bold and loud spirit with novel and edgy conduct. Which is it? Do we honor women who are models for excelling in their God-given womanly design or women who manage to do things that men have done for ages? Which is it? God has designed men and women uniquely, but as much as this is a blessing, sin distorts it. And even a few angry men zealous to be seen as right and to gain position, or a few vain women desiring to be noticed by others and to move up the social pecking order can put the Christian community at risk and can can put our gospel witness at risk. But praise be to Christ, who has redeemed us and is restoring His image in us, for in His image He created us, male and female He created us. May we be a church that embraces God's design for men and women through faith in Christ. Let's pray.